Good morning. Go over a couple of announcements. Uh, we all know the first four by heart. Uh, evening service is to resume tonight. We are correct. Okay. Always have to double check because things tend to get fluid around here. Uh, update on my stepson. He uh, was admitted to the hospital yesterday for some kind of a, they thought, a blood virus or uh, they just left it at that. They found out that uh, today through some tests he has uh, an E. coli related blood uh, infection, uh, to, to put it correctly, and it in initiated from a couple of things. Uh, actually, it migrated from a urinary tract infection, which I didn't know was possible. But they've got him admitted for a couple of days. They've got antibiotics on him, and they're possibly going to release him by midweek or sooner if things go well. So keep uh, Eric Hill, uh, my stepson, in your prayers for that, that uh, we could have a positive resolution to that. Um, do we have any updates on any of our folks that are out otherwise? Uh, Della, any word on Della, how she's doing? Someone spoke to Della? Nothing? Yes. Uh, it's up in uh, by Cadillac. That's where he's living now. So it's. <coughs> so. The doctors were pretty quick to get on it. So uh, I think they, whatever it is, they, they found uh, they're confident the antibiotics will knock it out. So he has some other issues. Uh, it's either. Uh, they're not sure. It bounces between diverticulosis, um, Crohn's disease, and uh, some kind of ulceric, uh, ulcerative colitis uh, as well. So it's just uh, uh, genetically from his father uh, that uh, brought it on. But uh, uh, just get, just keep him in prayer because he he does get into pain with these other issues quite often. So if there's no other updates or any other content, Dale? What's the, the little miscreant, I mean the lad's name? Amir. Amir, right. I understand in Wisconsin, uh, uh, Jenny and her husband are considering adopting these children. And while they're, uh, as foster parents, they're not allowed to spank, use corporal punishment in any way, shape, or form, put them in timeout, or remove their television from their room or their radio deny them. <coughs> now I also understand that, that those disciplinary actions change once they become an adoptive parent. So perhaps that might be the way to go. Since she's bent on, on keeping these kids. So and, and I give her all the credit in the world as being a 
an individual that is so caring and loving, you know, to, to take other people's children and to, to raise and nurture them. So let's keep generating our prayers as well. Yes. understand Mercy's been having some is issues with the grand malls uh, of late and Medication changes, I understand, also bring on these these minor seizures and these grandmas as well. Is that is that true or? These are all, these options are supposedly all good options, correct? <coughs> now, is she still on, on uh, pace to receive a, uh, uh, what I call a, one of those uh, helping dogs, those service dogs? these dogs are amazing and what they can do they can actually tell you just before it happens to so we need to we need to hold mercy up and the situation in prayer and uh, uh, look to the Lord that uh, he'll do this in his timing of course but uh, for her good and his glory as all the others mentioned Sometimes it's necessary to take a couple steps back. So, praise God in all his glory for uh, what he's done so far and continue to look for his actions again. So, Any other announcements uh, that I need to be made aware of? Okay. Uh,
scripture for meditation this morning is taken from the book of Hebrews, be chapter 11, verses 21 through 40, and you'll find that in your pew Bible on page 1876.
kindly stand with us as we begin our service with opening prayer. George, would you lead us, please? Please remain standing. Hannah, would you come up, please? Good morning. If you all will turn to number 38 with me in the red. Perfect. 473 in the brown. <clears throat> Do you have a reason for that this morning? Thank you.
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Genesis, 48th chapter. And it'll be verses 8 through 22, and it'll be page 81 in your pew Bible. When you come to it, please stand with us as we do the reading. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, Who are these? They are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, Bring them to me so I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him. And his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh on his left towards Israel's right hand and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head. Though he was the younger, and crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has spent my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And may they increase greatly upon the earth. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, No, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people, and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother 
stuck here. <clears throat> his younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day and said, In your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, I am about to die, but God be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. As to you, as one who is over your brothers, I give the ridge of land I took from the Amorites with my sword and my bow. Father in heaven, as we absorb and understand this reading, Lord, we ask your blessing upon it. To bless this, this holy and inspired reading to our hearts and our minds. In the name of Christ, amen. Please remain standing. Will you turn with me again to uh, 374 in the hymnal?
The monetary wealth he owned. The livestock he owned. The land. Finally the people themselves. This was a total and inclusive monarchy. He owned everything. Do you know that Jesus' kingdom is also that? But because Jesus is the righteous Lord of glory, to be under his rule is indeed heaven. And it was Jacob's wish to be buried back in Canaan, back in the promised land. And today's study brings before us the account of Manasseh and Ephraim. As we come, let us ask for the Lord's enablement. Our Lord, we do thank you and praise you for the word of God. These histories from the Old Testament teach us how God operates in all lands, in all times. And we can find your grace there as well as in the New Testament. And we praise you for that. If there's any characteristic that describes our God is the character of graciousness. Gracious. God is gracious. He's good-hearted to people, even to sinners, in order that they might come to know Him. So we pray you'll bless our time together. We thank you for the Word of God. Amen. We're looking today at Manasseh and Ephraim. And this falls into context with regard to an aging and ill Jacob. I mean, think about this. Getting old, eventually dying, that's part of life. It is. It doesn't matter how good a life you live. It doesn't matter how righteous your behavior. It doesn't matter how faithful your devotion to God, how circumspect your walk with God. All are going to die. 
we all die because, the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. Which ought to sound a loud and clarion call that all of us, to a man, must be sinners. Duh! Because everybody dies. What are sinners? They are those who have disobeyed God's law and spurned his holy word. Else there would be no death. So, there's no clearer proof of our sin than our death. Now, evolutionists teach that death was always part, always parcel of earthly life. But they are patently wrong. Paul tells us, just as sin entered the world through one man, and we know that to be Adam, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men. Because <coughs> all sinned. Romans 5, verse 12. <coughs> Death was not evident in the Garden of Eden until Adam and Eve disobeyed. The clear prohibition of God not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they sinned, the curse of death came. <clears throat> came. Just as God had warned. Jeremiah writes it this way, The sound of wailing is heard from Zion. <clears throat> How ruined we are. How great is our shame. We must leave our land because our houses are in ruins. Now, O oh women, hear the word of the Lord. Open your ears to the words of his mouth. Teach your daughters how to wail. Teach one another a lament. Death has climbed in through the window and has entered our fortresses. It has cut off the children from the streets and the young men from the public square. Jeremiah 9, verse 19 and following. The psalmist puts it this way. Remember how fleeting is my life. He's talking to God. Remember how fleeting is my life. For what futility you have created, all men. What man can live and not see death? Or save himself from the power of the grave. That's Psalm ninety Psalm eighty nine, verse forty seven and forty eight. And the implied answer, what man can live and not see death? Answer no one can. So now with Jacob it is so it is really no different except to say that with many of these Old Testament patriarchs Somehow, they knew their death day was approaching. Now think about this. If you know your death day is near, 
God is giving you the opportunity to right wrongs, clear up the things of which you have been negligent, tighten loose ends, and so on and so forth. One thing prized greatly by these Old Testament believers was to be able to bless their family members before departing. So when Joseph showed up at Jacob's sickbed, verse 2 tells us, Israel, that's another name for <clears throat> Jacob, Israel rallied his strength and he sat up on the bed. And he proceeded to tell Joseph the good news. Verse 3, God Almighty, El Shaddai, appeared to me at Luz, an old name for Bethel, in the land of Canaan. And there he blessed me and he said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and I will increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples and I will give you this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Any children born to you after, to, after them, they will be yours in the territory they inherit. They will reckon, be reckoned under the names of their brothers. Genesis 48, verse 36 and verse 3 through 6. So centuries later, after the exodus from Egypt, when Israel's descendants possessed the land of Canaan, it was divided up among the sons of Jacob, including his two adopted sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. But because the tribe of Levi received no share of the land, I'm reading scripture, but only towns to live in, with pasture lands for their flocks and herds, Joshua 14.4, the tribal account remained the same, half to Manasseh, half to Ephraim, half plus half the whole that would have gone to Levi. So that shows us how God is maintaining Israel and his son's possession of the land of Canaan. Jacob then blessing, he blessed Joseph's children. So like his father Isaac, before him we are told, verse 10, Israel's eyes were failing because of old age he could hardly see but his confession given to Joseph in verse 11 states I never expected to see your face again and now God has allowed me to see your children too so this is significant because the context tells us that Joseph positioned his two sons so that Manasseh the firstborn he would be the oldest right the firstborn, would be right in line with Jacob's right hand. And Ephraim, the younger, would be lined up with Jacob's left hand, the less dominant position of blessing. Sound familiar? Wasn't Jacob, the younger son, blessed by Isaac with the spiritual birthright privileges while Esau... The older son was not. 
This has happened before in this family. But God had other plans in mind. Instead of reaching straight forward with his arms, right hand on Manasseh's head, left hand on Ephraim's head, verse 14 tells us Israel crossed his arms, thus placing his right hand on Ephraim, though he was the younger. How did nearly blind Jacob do this? Verse 11. God has allowed me to see your children. Ooh, interesting. This is not the subtle inner knowledge we some to sometimes refer to as insight. That's not what he's talking about. Jacob was enabled by God to actually see and discern who among the two brothers in front of him was the younger and who was the older. Well, i got to tell you, Joseph was not pleased with Jacob's intent. He tried to forcibly move Jacob's hand from Ephraim to Manasseh, verse 17 and 18, perhaps believing, well, maybe Jacob's failing eyesight had caught him, caused him to make a very bad mistake. But Jacob hung tough, refusing to comply with Joseph's wishes and reassuring his son, verse 19, I know, my son, I know. I know. In other words, he's telling his son, I have not made a mistake. I know exactly what I'm doing. Manasseh will be blessed too. Yes, that's true. Nevertheless, verse 19, his younger brother will be greater than he. And verse 20 gives the summation. So he, Jacob, put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Now, what's going on here? Well, let me just say that this is not stubborn old grandpa showing favoritism to one grandchild over another. But as Hebrew 11, verse 21 states, By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. This spiritual adherence to the will of God is brought out in our text in the extended blessing of Joseph by his father Jacob. Verse 15. Then he blessed Joseph and he said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly upon the earth. 
Genesis 48, verse 15 and 16. What a legacy to bequeath upon our children and grandchildren. Think about it. The inheritance that you leave your kids, homes, real estate, a bank account, a good education, friendship, counsel, all of those that you leave your children pale in comparison to the spiritual legacy of faith in God proven by a life lived for God. Paul writes it this way, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, we can take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. And people who want to get rich fall into the temptation and trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and they've pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 and following. You know, we have to be better parents and grandparents than what the world is. The world which has sold out its soul for temporal prosperity. Jesus put it this way concerning the builder of barns remember the story, whose sole ambition was, and these are his words, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns, and I'm going to build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to myself, Self, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. So take life easy, uh, eat, drink, be merry. Luke 12, verse 18, 19. You note that his plans were completely self-absorbed and completely sold out to luxury and money and ease and lack of faith in God. But a lot of faith what he had done. He ignored God, but God did not ignore him. His plan had worldly business savvy written all over it. How to make and keep money. How to hedge against inflation. So he could retire with abundance. But here's how God responded. God said to him, 
You fool. You fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And then Jesus gives <clears throat> the moral of the account. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. Luke 12, verse 20 and 21. Solomon, whose wisdom was legendary, who made silver and gold, I'm reading scripture, who made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stone, and cedar as plentiful as sycamore trees in the foothills. Second Chronicles 1, verse 15. That Solomon nonetheless concluded, whoever loves the money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much. But the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner. Or wealth lost through some misfortune. So that when he has a son, <laughs> there's nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb. And as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain? Since the toils is for the wind. All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10 and 5. But there's another kind of wealth which will ever remain. It's stated by Solomon's father, King David, he says, the words of the Lord are flawless. They are like silver refined. Refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. Psalm 12, verse 6. Again, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, 
giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Psalm 19, verse 7 and following. So get the priorities straight in your life. What are some of the lessons we learn at the feet of this old man, Jacob? Well, one was a common one, I think, is the lesson that all people die. All people die. Pagans die, Christians die, adults die, children die, babies die. Every race on earth has a mortality rate. God-fearing people die, and God-haters die. Solomon put it this way, I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head, while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. And then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, Ah, this too is meaningless. For the wise man, like the fool, will not be long remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man, too, must die. So I hated life. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless. It is a chasing after the wind. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 13 and following. So said wise man Solomon when he was in a blue slump. It would appear that much can be said about the death of mankind being no better than the death of dumb beasts of the field. Again, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3, I thought in my heart, God will bring me to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. I also thought, as for man, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. How so? He goes on. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust. And to dust they all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal 
goes down into the earth. So I saw there's nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work because that is his lot. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Ecclesiastes 3, verse 17 and following. Well, the psalmist, however, shows a vital distinction between the death of animals and the death of God's people, between the death of the unrepentant and that of believers. Let me read it for you. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers who approve their sayings. Like sheep, they are destined for the grave, and death will feed on them. The upright will rule over them in the morning. Their forms will decay in the grave, far from their princely mansions. But God will redeem my life from the grave. Ooh. He will surely take me to himself. Do not be overawed with a man grows rich when the splendor of his house increases, for he will take nothing with him when he dies. His splendor will not ascend with him or descend with him. Though while he lived, he counted himself blessed, and men praised him for his prosperity. Though that is true, he will join the generation of his fathers who will never see the light of life. A man who has riches without understanding is like the beasts that perish. Psalm 49, verse 13 and following. The writer of Hebrews also makes a vital distinction. When animals die, there is no accounting for their conduct, for how many other animals they have killed or eaten to survive, for how ferocious and mean-spirited they have conducted themselves. But for all rational thinking, morally responsible mankind, God declares, man is destined to die once. Die once. And after that, to face judgment. Oh, Hebrews 9, verse 27. Animals, non-moral creatures, they don't face judgment. They're functioning on <clears throat> what we call nature. If they're carnivores, they kill and eat other animals. But you're more than animal. You're a creature created in the image of God. And because of that, God holds every one of us sitting here morally accountable for our actions. So, would you prefer to meet God as your maker and judge and jury? Or meet Him as your redeemer and savior and
wouldn't think there'd be any contest there. But people don't believe that judgment is coming, that consequences are coming for their life of sin. So they have little incentive to think of God other than to use his name to curse and blaspheme. Lesson two. The opportunity to give or to be a blessing to others rallies the heart of believers. Think of this. When word came to Joseph, your father is ill. The servants who came were not saying, uh, we want to tell you your father has the sniffles. No. It was an indication to Joseph that his dad was on his deathbed. This is why he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him, and he hurried off to see his father. And there was no time to waste if Joseph wanted his father to bestow his final blessing on his boys before dying. Many a family has experienced the same thing. When my mother took ill and was admitted to the hospital in Rochester, New York, my sister Sandy made a phone call to me and to my brother and our respective families to say her words, better come now if you want to see mom one last time before she goes home to be with the Lord. So we all made quick arrangements. We jumped in our cars. We headed for New York without delay. Same thing with Connie Tucker. Informing her children in Ohio that their dad, Pastor Tucker, was dying in Missouri. Jumped in their cars. Headed clear out to Missouri arrived just in time to say their last goodbyes. But something unusual happened with Jacob when his sons and grandson showed up at his bedside. Verse 2 says, When Jacob was told, Your son Joseph has come to you, Israel, that's his new God-given name, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. Now this was more than oh son it's been a long time so glad to see you. No it's not that. The rallying energy which came from the one Jacob named God Almighty had to do with the opportunity being given to Jacob one more time to give and to be a spiritual blessing to his family. I don't know the future timetable that God has for you, that he has for me, but the prayer of the psalmist seems appropriate for us all. Teach us to number our days aright, says the psalmist, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. 
Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us for as many years as we have been troubled. May your deeds be shown to your servants and your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Psalm 90, verse 12 and following. The news that Jacob's family had come to see him on his sickbed was a shot of adrenaline in his body that enabled him to give and to be a blessing to them. Jesus put it this way, as long as it's day, we must do the work of him who sent us. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. John 9, verse 4 and 5. And then to his disciples he said, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Matthew 5, verse 14 and 5. And then finally, let us learn that people of the world become the people of God by adoption. Through no fault of their own, Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, were born to an Egyptian mother. Her name is Asenath. Asenath. She is found in chapter 41, verse 50. She was the daughter of a pagan priest in Egypt. And thus, they were citizens of Egypt and heirs of everything pagan, everything devoid of God. Think about it. Then along comes Jacob, who understands full well that Joseph's boys have no roots, no claims to the kingdom of God, so long as they remain citizens of Egypt and aliens to the kingdom of God. And he declares, Your two sons born you in Egypt will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Massa will be mine. Verse 5. And this was no smokescreen promise. These two sons became heads of the true tribal clans in Israel, complete with their own lands, their own livestock, their own place of rule, etc. Jacob literally conscripted these boys to be his own. And as he says, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine, verse 5, just like my blood-born son. I'm going to adopt them. Do you know that it is the same for every child of God who comprises the church of Christ? It is. Paul says, 
God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us so it wasn't owed or it wasn't the result of our own doing. He has given us in the one whom he loves. May I say the church is the largest adoption agency in the world. Think of it. The largest adoption agency in the world for all except Jesus himself who was uniquely begotten of the Father. All of us are adopted children. And what made us such a favored people? Were we chosen for adoption because we were somehow different from other sinners? No. Chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live and you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, Satan, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. That's where you were. All of us, I'm still reading, lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires, following its thoughts, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Really? We were like the rest? Objects of God's wrath? We weren't some kind of prize for God choosing us? No, we were just people worthy of his wrath and worthy of his destruction. Oh, okay, then why? Why would he choose us? Scripture says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive spiritually with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace that you have been saved. Ephesians 2, verse 1 and 5. Adopted children can claim no obligation on the part of the adoptive parent to choose them. Think of it. Well, you need to choose me. No, he doesn't. Like Ephraim and Manasseh, we are Egyptian and part of the world, but God can and does call us saints from the world of sinners. And the call of God is a summons that no one can reject. 
our role then, Ephesians 2, verse 10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. May I say it this way? The saved are not an afterthought with God. Nor is their purpose an afterthought. Ephraim and Manasseh were actually saved out of the world by Jacob's adoption of them as his own. And they shared the same privileges, the same opportunities as his own blood-born sons. So too Christ's love for us drew us to him by his eternal plan and we are given the charge, the charge to call God Abba, Father. Finally, in all of this, we learn there's no accident in a world controlled by God. Joseph had it all worked out the way he wanted Jacob to bless his two boys. The lion's share of the blessing would go to Manasseh, the oldest son. So he lined Manasseh up with Jacob's right arm and right hand, symbolic of strength and might. It's the hand that holds the royal scepter over the entire clan. His thinking all alone, all along rather, was that Jacob would simply follow through by placing his right hand on Manasseh's head to bestow his blessing. It's all set up. But when Jacob did the unthinkable, when he crossed his arms and switched left hand to Manasseh and right hand to Ephraim, Dad, you can't do that, Joseph protested. It's not right. It's not the way things are done. Yeah, but it was going to be the way things were done. Why? Because traditions of men devoid of God's will are to be abandoned as the way of doing things. That's why. Men fight God with their traditions. They even elevate their traditions over the commands and teachings of God in the scripture. This was the major defect with the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day. Now think of it, every family has its traditions which they feel comfortable with and which usually emit warm and fuzzy feelings of contentment and stability and peace. Think about it, holidays, birthdays, favorite vacation spots. But when men devise traditions contrary to God's word and then treat them as though they had the authority of God's word. These can endanger 
men's souls with error, with falsehood, which damns rather than saves. Jesus said, So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, uh, Why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? And he replied, well, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Mark 7, verse 6 through 9. You see it in our text? It was traditional in the Oriental culture of Jacob's day to pronounce the primal blessing on the firstborn son of the family. God's rule was this. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And he said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter, and they will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you'll stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. Open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you. I don't know where you came from. Then you will say, Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. You know us. We ate. We drank with you. And you taught in our streets. And But he will reply, reply, I don't know you. Or where you come from. Away from me. All you evildoers. And there will be weeping. There gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham Isaac, Jacob all the prophets in the kingdom of God but you yourself thrown out people will come from east and west north, south and will take their places at the feet in the king, at the feast in the kingdom of God indeed there are those who are last who will be first and first, who will be last? Luke 13, verse 23 and following. Folks, a seat at God's table has nothing to do with privilege or worth, but solely based on God's grace.
Adoption is never compulsory, but always of grace. Think about that. God put it this way. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. What is he saying? It's my decision. That's what he's saying. But what about us? What do we do? What can we do? We must be like the thief on the cross. who said, me, Lord, me, Lord. Please, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. We can plead for mercy, but we can't demand it. We need to trust God's grace, not our own alleged goodness. In other words, we must come to God believing what God has to say about us. And you can't candy coat it. You can't say, well, okay, maybe I'm a sinner. But you know, I never murdered anybody. I never raped anybody. I never really stole from anybody. What we're doing is beginning to, to excuse ourselves and to make ourselves look good. I'm not like so-and-so over there or over there. I'm just not. Don't put me in that category or that category. I'm not them. That's true. You're not them. You have your own personal brand of sin, which is unique to you but it is still sin against God's laws and the soul that sins shall die God said there's only one way out of that and that's to have somebody else die for you what? yeah a substitute someone to stand in a proxy Where am I going to get a person like that? The person like that is only one, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, who came to earth to say, I will die for you. I will pay your debt. I will go to a cross, not for my sins, because I have none but as a bearer of your sins if you will trust me to do that for you. Yeah, but I... No, no buts. You're a sinner. You're a lost sinner. I'm a sinner. I'm a lost sinner. I need a substitute to stand in 
for me. You need a substitute to stand in for you. And Jesus is that substitute who alone is approved by the Father because he, while being fully man and fully God, never sinned, not once. So if he never sinned, he can take on your sins and my sins. He can be a surrogate. And wonder of wonders, because he's God's very own son, God accepts the sacrifice. He accepts the payment of his son for you, for me, if you'll believe in him and trust him. Now, if you keep working on the idea that you can pay for your own sin, and you can pay it to the point where you won't have to worry about judgment day, you, you go ahead and keep working that way. And when judgment comes, the scripture says, it's appointed unto men to die once and after that to face judgment. You're really going to stand before God, the creator of the universe, who knows your heart better than you know your heart. And you're going to position your, you're going to plead your case on the basis of how good you are. That is the great delusion of the evil one. Huh? What did he say to Eve when she ate, when she disobeyed and ate of the forbidden tree? Well, God said, don't eat of that tree, but you ate of that. And he said that you will surely die. What did he say to her? You will not surely die. You see, God just knows that you're going to become like him. You're going to know things like God knows things that presently you don't know. So eating is a plus, not a negative. And Satan has a way of deluding us into thinking sinful thoughts to cover up. Lord, help us to be honest about our sin and to understand that apart from your grace, there is no hope for us. But with your grace and your mercy and your love for sinners that you express through your beloved Son, there is not only hope but assurance that we will be absent from the body and present with the Lord when we die. Help us to understand that. Now, we don't have that faith, but we're asking that you'll grant it. We don't have the repentance. We love our sin. Admittedly so. So we're asking for repentance with regard to our love of sin. May we see in Jesus that great Savior who he is for all who will come to him. In Christ's name, amen. Now our closing hymn is from the hymnal number 52.
Let's stand and sing. Thank you, Lord, for the fact that you care for us and our life is in your hands. Help us to see that. No better hands than the hands of God to protect and care for us and to bring life and forgiveness and repentance into our sinful, sinful nature. We bless thee for that. You sought us before the creation of the world. It says in the scriptures that you wrote our name in the book of life before the creation of the world. And because of that, your people are drawn out on a daily basis and brought to saving faith in Jesus. If there's one here this morning that has been dragging their feet with regard to commitment to Jesus as Savior and Lord, bring them today, Lord. Have their name that was written in the Lamb's Book of Life become a reality for them today and we'll praise you for it and we ask Lord that you will continue to work in the lives of our children and our adults who do not yet know you and bring them to the saving power of the Savior 
for that is why you came to earth. It was not in man the righteousness needed to save himself. The goodness needed to save himself. No. We needed a perfect Savior, and that one is you. We bless thee today and thank you with great appreciation. Amen. We are dismissed here for evening service. Thank you.